God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And in a very plain sense, telling people God is at hand, God is near. Where the kingdom of God is, God is. So that is his main message that he's wanting to tell. And we saw that his message and his coming was prophesied in Isaiah and in Malachi. And Malachi being the last book of the Old Testament, it was the last prophet before John the Baptist. Then we have 400 years of silence from God through his prophets. But why was God coming near well, Malachi tells us that the priests of Israel were not doing so well. They were not honoring the Lord. Judah themselves, the people, were faithless and weary, wearisome to God. And in their lives, they questioned and mocked Yahweh. And these were the kind of things that they were saying. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. And then they ask, where is the God of justice? And so in his response in Malachi, his response to them is, I am coming. I am coming to my world, to my creation, and I'm coming among my people Israel. And as you read through Malachi, you see that he's coming in judgment. He's coming not in pleasantry, but he's coming to bring judgment upon those whom have not repented. And that is therefore why he sends John the Baptist as a warning, as an opportunity of grace, as an opportunity to turn, as an opportunity to repent to change their mind about God. Because as he says at the end of Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. That's a reference to John the Baptist. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers and the children and the hearts of the children of their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So John preaches the, meth, the message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and thank the Lord, there was a response. People from all Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region of Jordan were going out to him. They were going to be baptized, but they were also going to confess their sin. Our passage last week doesn't specifically name Jesus in these first six verses, but it's implied that as John says, or as Isaiah says, prepare the way of the Lord, John knows very well that this is the Messiah that he is preparing the way for, the Christ. Let's get us to verse 7 and into our passage today, 7 through 12. And we're going to see more about John the Baptist, not so much his mission, but more about his message, what he has to say. Now, no. John is a prophet of God. So what he has to say is what God has to say. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord as he speaks his message. And we carry from last week's 
time and and the first six verses into this verse and so on. Now let's look at 7 through 10. And let us see of the coming judgment that John is proclaiming. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Now here is again an explanation of the judgment coming. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, so the the first thing I want us to see and focus on this morning isn't fun to see and focus on. But it is a reality. It is a reality of the wrath of God. As the kingdom of heaven approaches God's creation, sadly, wrath is inevitable. As the kingdom of heaven approaches His fallen creation, the wrath of God is inevitable. It must come. And He says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, who we'll discuss more in a minute, who has warned you to flee from this wrath. But wh- why must wrath be an ev- inevitable as the kingdom of God comes to His creation? And it's simply because of who God is and who we are. Our nature in contrast to God's nature. As God comes... He brings judgment to a sinful people. Now, if I told you in the next 30 seconds, a lion was to come through the back door, what would you do within the next 30 seconds? You'd pick a door, right? Not that one. What is a lion's nature? To eat, to attack. What are we made of? Delicious meat. As God approaches, as the kingdom of heaven approaches, knowing that God is holy, righteous, good, and the big problem is, we are not, the lion will attack. And it will be a right, just attack. John is saying, Not the king of the jungle is here, but the king of the universe is here. Again, I said this isn't a pleasant message to to hear or to talk about, but is one that is absolutely necessary. And thinking through this, and as we've referenced fire a lot last week, and we see fire referenced multiple times here, it reminded me of a passage in Hebrews chapter 12, which kind of gives the same message. Hebrews chapter 12, verse starting in verse 25. It's a message of warning. 
It's a message about God and about who God is. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. The removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Pay attention. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Notice the warning as in what John has given. Notice a kingdom that comes that cannot be shaken. And all that which is not a part of his, that kingdom can be shaken. And it will be removed. And God is a consuming fire. Nothing that is shaken can stand. Just as in we saw in Malachi 4.1. And I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all evildoers will, will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now look what John tells them in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 3. Even now, now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. What does an axe do to a tree? Cuts it down. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Sounds like it's ready to come down. The axe is laid even now at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. And that's why John's saying, repent! Because the kingdom of heaven is near. And every tree that does not bear fruit of this kingdom will be cut down and thrown into the fire. For God is a consuming fire. But then the question that's asked and the question that everybody asks at some point, why, why would a God who is good, why would a God who the Scripture says is love bring wrath? The answer is, is because He is good. Exactly. Exactly. So much, so much bad Theology, and when I say theology, I just mean of our, our study of an understanding of God. Theo means God, ology means study. So much bad theology comes from a misunderstanding of what Scripture says God is, who God is. And see, we, we bring to God 
our imperfections and we place them on Him. So we say God is love. Well, we can look around this world and know that we've got a pretty bad understanding of what love is. And so when a world, and even sometimes in the church, we point to God and say, well, He can't do that because He is love. Don't put your sinful understanding of love upon a holy, good God. We must turn to Scripture to discern what love is. Not within us and not around us. For our hearts are sick and deceitful. Not my words, Jeremiah. The problem, they don't understand who God is. We don't understand who God is. We interpose, we place on Him what we want God to be. And what... It's going to be what we want Him to be. It's going to, it's going to be what brings us goodness and pleasure when we put on Him what we think He should be. We can't build our understanding based on our intellect. So we talked about wisdom in Sunday school. That's not just gaining an understanding and a knowledge. You... I guarantee you, there are, we all know some really smart people. But when it comes to godly wisdom, there is far below as you can understand. Knowledge and information doesn't always equate to wisdom. But the knowledge that God gives, the knowledge of God that equates to a godly life, that is living in wisdom. We don't live our life based on what we know or our emotions, or our experiences. We don't base our understanding of God except on what God has said. We look to the Scripture to find out who He is. And sometimes we find out some things, and at first, we don't want to believe it. We don't want to admit it. God tells us who He is, not the other way around. And this, this is a problem that we have. This is a problem that we all have, that we all face, that God is a good God and He brings wrath to evil. You know, and it's not something we can avoid. How, I know many of you, and I've done it myself, you knew something was going wrong in your house for me, it was the water system. I knew something was wrong. And all I could think in my mind was how much it was going to cost to fix it. So I avoid it, right? I don't do it. Did that make the problem go away? No. We've all taken tests. We've all had to prepare for test. Did not preparing for it? Take the test away? No. Just because we ignore the wrath of God doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because we don't think about it doesn't mean that God won't judge. But why would this God, why would He judge? Why would He bring wrath? I want us to look at Isaiah 40. 
In Isaiah chapter 40 is another passage that prophesies the coming of John the Baptist. So I imagine he probably knew it well. Isaiah chapter 40. For for us believers who might feel like we're getting a little big-headed every now and then, come visit this chapter. When you think you've got things figured out, come visit this chapter. Starting in verse 12. Isaiah 40 verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scale and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Did he ask any of you what you thought when he placed the stars in the sky? Did he ask you how far Orion should be from uh, the Big Dipper? Who did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? That's God. Here's us. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. How much does dust weigh on scales? Nothing. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. All the cedars of Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before Him and are accounted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. And you might be thinking, well, Luke, you think a lot about us. Well, I hope you don't think a lot about yourself. I hope that we can see by the power of God, the majesty of our Creator. That He is Yahweh. That name meaning I am. I have been, I am, I always will be. Verse 25, To whom will you compare me that I should be like Him? says the Holy One. So, the question that we may sometimes ask is, how can God be wrathful? How can God bring judgment? Paul says it plainly in his answer to the Romans, who are you, O man? Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? You are the clay. He is the potter. The clay never turns and says, why have you done this? Why have you made me this way? What are you doing, potter? 
No, the potter has all right over his clay. God, the creator, who was, who is, and always will be, has all right over his creation. And only those who see who he is and what we are like a drop of the bucket, it's only those who can respond, as John says, to repent. Because remember, the word John uses to say repent means to have a change of mind. And some of us here today need to have a change of mind about our position before a holy creator. All of us must be looking to change our mind each and every day as prayerfully we take in more and more of who He is. And this is wisdom, understanding about the Lord so that we may act in a manner that is worthy of Him. Before we leave this a couple more things. I'll read these to you and write them down and visit them later. I'll just read them real quick so we can save a little time. Again, we might be thinking, well, that's, what is God, why? What gives God the right? I want you to understand something today that's really difficult. It's really difficult for us. God's biggest concern is Himself. God's biggest concern is not the 73.2 years we get on this life, on this earth. God's concern is His eternal glory. When we live our lives thinking that God's greatest concern is our good and happiness upon this earth, we have made ourselves God. We have made Him our servant. That is not the case. Isaiah says this, For my name's sake, this is the Lord speaking, for my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I might not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as, a, not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, he repeats that, I do it for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And do you know when God prophesied through Ezekiel, the new covenant through Jesus Christ, do you know why He does it? For His namesake. His justice and His wrath comes that He might not share His glory for the, with another, but He saves and He frees us from our own sin and our condemnation that He may have glory that His name will not be profaned. He says, in the prophecy of the new covenant through Jesus Christ, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, 
it is not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And I want us to understand that holy, when God says He's holy, He's not saying He's perfect, what's part of it, but He's saying there is nothing like Him. No one like Him. It is for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Now hear this. God says, for my name's sake, I am going to do something. You've profaned my name. Listen to what He says He's going to do. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit my, a new spirit in you and I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone and from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rule. God is a God of judgment, but He is also a God of mercy. And those whom have profaned His name, He says, I will cleanse you. And he's doing it for his own glory. When God is glorified, his children, those who are in Christ, do receive good. He's not acting only that we may have received goodness from him. But we receive goodness from God when he is glorified in us through Jesus Christ. Now, back to Matthew 3. Now, we have, we have to know this thing. We have to know this. We have to understand this for, the, for any of it to make sense. For the good news to make sense, we have to understand the bad news. That's why Brother Dan is texting back and forth with this, this young man. It's because he knows the bad news. And he knows... What will pull him from that? And we as a church, we can't ignore it. Or we'll just be a hollow, empty, but maybe full of people, church. Which gets us to John's conversation with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now I'm... I, I, I wanted to introduce the Pharisees and Sadducees to you just to give you an idea of who they are. But instead of spending a lot of time, let me just read to you Jesus' words to the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 23 to just get a sense of why John is speaking to them the way he does. He says, Woe to you, which means... Look out. Pay attention. This is not good for you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. A Pharisee and a Sadducee are religious leaders of the Jews. What did Jesus, Jesus just say? You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourself nor allow those who would go to enter in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea 
and land to make a single proselyte, to, to make a disciple. And when he becomes a proselyte, a disciple, you make him twice as much a child as hell as yourself. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and heresies, hypocrites. You uh, clean the outside of your cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgent. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead bones. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. What do you think Jesus thinks about the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees? One word, hypocrites. And so they stumble in to John's preaching, John baptizing. John sees them. John knows they're not there to confess sin. So he asks a sarcastic rhetorical question in verse 7. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, as he's preaching, the people from Jerusalem and Judea and all of this area are coming because they know the wrath is coming. That's what he's explaining. So they show up and he's like, oh, you've come to flee the wrath? They haven't. They come to question him. They come to mock him. And he calls them a name pretty intense you brood of vipers you brood of vipers you den of snakes you sons of satan that's name calling you think well john you shouldn't do that well jesus calls them the same thing twice in matthew you brood of vipers. Jesus tells these men later, you see it in John, he says, your father is the devil. You hypocrites. You say one thing, you do another. Your acts are empty. Your speech is hollow. And he, and hollow. And he says, he says to them, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What do they mean? He means they're hypocrites. He means there's nothing about them that is good internally. And everything that you see on the outside, the external, is fake. Everything. And they are leading the people of Israel to hell. You brood of vipers who has warned you to flee from the wrath of come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you belong to the kingdom that is coming, you will bear kingdom fruit. If you repent, your life 
will reflect that repentance. Those who belong to the kingdom bear kingdom fruit. Don't tell me that you're in Christ, but have no love for your neighbor. You must repent. Don't tell me that you have no patience with your kids and they always get on your nerves. Repent. Don't tell me you're quick. You're the quick one at work with that crude joke. Repent. Don't tell me that you can't read the Bible and seek the Lord because you don't like to read. Repent. None of that is fruit in keeping with repentance. Love your neighbor as yourself. Endure with your children, with your family, with your co-workers. Speak only that which is edifying and building up to those that are around you. Seek the Word. Seek knowledge in the Lord. And if you don't like to read, listen to it. We cannot say that we come into these doors as Christians and then act like Pharisees in a hollow, empty acts and words. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. For this is the entrance into the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ. So if you walk up to a tree, if you're not a tree expert, and there's no fruit on it, I wouldn't know what kind of tree it is. But if I walked up to an apple tree and there were apples on it, I would be like, hey, that's an apple tree. So the question is, when people walk up to you, do they see the fruit of Christ upon you? Do they see love the way Christ loves? Do they find you in joy, in joy, no matter what's going on? Work is horrible right now, but that guy is weirdly joyful. Do people see you living in patience? Do they know you as someone who is kind? If people could not see your fruit, how do they know? How do they know you're a Christian? How do they know that Christ is in you? Because I'm telling you, if God is in you, you will bear fruit. And the sad warning that John is giving is that for the trees that have no fruit, they will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's not a good fire. And the last thing, and I want to close and we'll push through the rest of this this evening. There's another thing that John had against these men. In verse 
9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for, uh, children for Abraham. So what he's referring to is what we saw in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God is fulfilling the promise to Abraham that he will bless the world through the seed of Abraham. Well, guess what? These Pharisees think that that's them. They think they're the seed of Abraham that is going to bless everyone. And their, point, their part in the kingdom of heaven is taken care of because they are the seed of Abraham. So the problem John has with these Pharisees is guilt by association and not the way that we think about it. But they are guilty because they are trying to live only by their association of the blood that runs in their veins. The kingdom of heaven is not, is not by blood, not by will of man, not by man, but by everyone who is born of God. In the, I didn't think about this. Well, before I... Let me, let me quote. I, I've got a, a couple stacks of um, commentaries I, I perused through. And one of them is from Charles Spurgeon, and he gave a warning to the church. And I just had to, I have to read this. We cannot be guilty by association, thinking that because we walk in these doors, we're in the kingdom of heaven. Because we know a lot about God, that that puts us in the kingdom of heaven. No. Spurgeon says, let none of us, because we are orthodox, meaning we're right in our understanding, or we're exceedingly scriptural or biblical in our religious observances, dream that we must be, therefore, in the favor of God, and that we are under no necessity to repent. God can do without us. That's what John was saying to these Pharisees. God doesn't need you to fulfill His promise. But we cannot without repentance. We cannot go without repentance and without the work which prove it true. We cannot be to the point where we think that God owes us anything. He owes us nothing. And the beauty of this, He says, they're in the desert, right? And there's stones probably around the Jordan River. And, and John, points at the, or John points at these stones and says, No, God will raise these stones as children of Abraham. And you know what we read in Ezekiel 36? That God removes hearts of stone and gives us beating hearts of flesh. He did. He turned stone into children of Abraham. He has turned us who has been cold and dead in our sin and trespasses alive to God in Christ Jesus. And He has fulfilled what John told the Pharisees that God would do. But 
that's only for those who have repented. Who have changed their mind about God and who He is and they fear Him. And knowing that they are sinful and He is holy and judgment is coming. But in Christ Jesus, we escape that judgment. Because of, as we'll see tonight, because of His righteousness and because He is pleasing to the Father. So I tell you, flee from the wrath to come today. And the only place to flee and to go to is at the cross of Christ. Let's pray.